the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, episode 484, for Sunday, January 19th, 2014. Greetings, folks, and welcome to the uh, palindromic version of the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, the show where we send in answers via audio as a podcast to your question. I'll get that. I had a nice rap going there. Uh, and now, now the last couple of weeks, I overthink it and, and, and then I get stuck and here we are. So you send in questions. We answer your questions. You send in tips. We share your tips. We share tips of our own. We all share cool stuff found. And uh, together, the goal is to all learn quite a bit new about the Mac and other Apple products each and every time we get together here in snowy Durham, New Hampshire. I'm Dave Hamilton. And here in not snowy, fearful Connecticut, John F. Braun. Hey, John. Yeah, it's a winter wonderland outside, man. It's it's snowing a little bit now, but um, but it's just like white on all the trees and everything. It's it's pretty. If the sun peeks through today, it'll be really gorgeous as it, you know, you get the blue sky and the white snow on the, all the branches and everything. It's awesome. I love it. Birdie. Yeah. It sucked driving in it yesterday though. We had to go back and forth to, uh, to Maine and driving all over for a hockey tournament. In fact, as soon as the show ends today, back to Maine for another hockey, uh, for the, the championship game, which should be fun. Yay. Yeah. Yeah. It's fun. The kids enjoy it. So that's the point. You know, John, our, our first sponsor of the day is what I'm going to start with here be, uh, because that's that's what I put on the agenda, and that's how we're going to do this. So, yeah, our first sponsor is Barebones at Barebones.com. They've been around forever. They are way older than Mac Geek Gab is, and, uh, and they deserve it, too, because they've got a slew of great products. Actually, they've got several great products. BB Edit is their flagship product. And BB Edit is a world class text editor. You know, I, I it, it is people that have listened to the show for uh, a little while, at least know that this is a piece of software that I leave running on my Mac 100 percent of the time. I use it constantly. Yes, I use it to edit files. Um, I can I can edit our PHP code for the site. I can edit our templates for the site. What's cool is when I want to edit those kinds of files, it figures out what the what language they're in and then starts formatting just the text, just, just visually formatting, highlighting uh, the various functions and things like that. It doesn't add that formatting to the files. It just does it visually in the editor, which makes it really easy to get through and see where things are. What's also cool is I can open files from my local machine or my network drives locally here. But if I want to open a file over FTP, which I do, I can do that. It's got a little FTP browser built right into the software. And then once that file's open, it's treated like any other file. So if I'm editing something on my local drive and I hit command S to save, it saves it. If I'm editing something over an FTP link to a server, say in Virginia, and I hit command S, it saves it by FTPing it back to that server in Virginia. It's totally seamless and it works. That's one of the ways I use it. The other way is it's got so much text formatting capability that I leave an empty window open and I'm constantly using it to count the number of lines in a document, sort uh, bits and pieces of text. Uh, I use it to 
paste in things that have a bunch of format. You know, sometimes you copy text from a web page or something. It's got like bold and underlined and all kinds of formatting. If you BB edit is a text only editor. So anything you paste in there, all that formatting is stripped from. So if I paste something in there, then copy it out of there, all that formatting has gone. And I can just paste raw text, which is really handy. There's other ways to do it. But with BB edit open all the time, it's just a quick pass through and uh, and really, really handy. You can also use it from the terminal in that you can invoke it from the terminal. You uh, you install the BB edit command line tools, which are free. And then when you're at the terminal, if you want to edit a file instead of, say, typing VI or nano or Pico or Emacs or whatever you're text-based you know terminal editor is you type bb edit in the name of the file and boom up comes bb edit with your file and again the same thing when you save it back it goes check it out you can buy it on the mac app store but you can also download you can buy it from barebones.com uh and you can download a free trial from barebones.com so check it out bb edit from barebones.com and with that john i think it's time to dive into the first question of the show and Nicole has something very interesting going on. She says, I've been using mail rules for a while to manage mail that I'd rather deal with at work versus home. Until recently, those rules would never process unless my MacBook Pro was awake or turned on, connected to the Internet, and mail was launched and refreshed. Lately, I've been receiving forwarded mail at my work address without any home computer being on and connected to the Internet. I can be certain of this because I work from home and I'm generally alone except for beasts of the four-legged variety. And I'm not saying that said beasts are not capable of such hijinks, but given that I can see my MacBook from my work desk and the lid remains closed, I know they're not responsible in this case. So this begs the question of whether in Mavericks, Mavericks, which I recently installed, has the ability to execute mail rules from the cloud. I can't think of another possible explanation since these rules only exist on my MacBook Pro. I've scoured iCloud.com and the related communities to find no reference whatsoever to the notion that Apple mail rules are remembered by iCloud. All right. Yeah. So, Nicole, you're, you're right. Um, mail rules do not get copied to iCloud. And John, you, you and I both... Check this, because as we've discussed, mail rules do copy from one Mac to another if you've got iCloud syncing uh, set up between those two Macs. Right. So yes, very handy. It is handy. Yeah. Right. But I don't think that's what's going on for her here either. Now, you could set up your own rules in iCloud and uh, but those are going to be treated separately from, say, the rules in mail on your Macs. However. Mavericks did introduce a new functionality called PowerNap. And what PowerNap does is it allows your computer to execute certain things while it's asleep. And one of those things is checking mail and then it processes mail. So I think that's what's going on. I think you've got PowerNap enabled, which it is by default. We'll put an article in the in the show notes, of course, but uh, but you can disable PowerNap or adjust it by going to system preferences energy saver and then you'll see a box for enable power nap and check it and it's enabled uncheck it and it's disabled so that's the uh that's our story i'm pretty sure that that's what's going on with you uh you didn't say what model macbook pro you have but but you probably have one new enough to to run power nap that's that's the most most obvious answer to this mystery unless of course your iCloud syncing to another mac that's processing that mail I'm with you. 
The other explanation could be that one of these four-legged beasts uh, created a forward um, behind your back. That's <laughs> true. Your, on your mail account, but I, I don't think that's the. Uh, I don't think that's the case. Yeah. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. All right. Uh, you know, there there is something interesting in the last show. I think it was the last show. In one of the recent shows, we talked to Devin uh, about or we answering one of Devin's questions about mail and uh, and IMAP folders. And 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 one of the issues Devin was having was that there were folders being created. And we said, well, there's got to be another client connecting that's creating these sent or deleted folders that aren't syncing up with everything else. Devin dug deeper, say that 10 times fast and reported back to us that iCloud itself, um, of course acts as its own client to the IMAP server. And that being the web interface acts as a client to iCloud's IMAP server. And I didn't realize this, John, but you can go into iCloud and set what mailbox iCloud is going to use for sent and trash messages. And what Devin did was to go in and set these to something else and then back to the defaults of sent and trash. And that fixed the problem. So you check this out by going into iCloud, choose mail, and then go uh, into mail settings, which is in the very lower left-hand corner uh, of the window is, is the little settings gear. It's not overly obvious. Uh, and then once you're there on the general tab, which is the first tab that comes up at the bottom, you'll see a mailboxes section that says save sent messages in, and you can choose a mailbox there or move deleted messages to. And of course you can choose a mailbox there. Defaults are sent and trash respectively, if that helps. So thanks Devin. I never, never realized that, I've never seen an IMAP web client for a, its own server that lets you set that stuff. It's usually kind of set by default, but, uh, but solved your problem. So there you go. You know, that is funny because it's only letting you set uh, a subset of yeah the folders, you know, sent and trash because based on what I've seen, there's also uh, typically junk, Right. There's another one, which I guess is somewhat standard. And then uh, archive, I think, is the uh, or drafts. Dra- the drafts. Other. Yeah. Inbox, drafts, sent and trash are kind of the four, you know, blessed IMAP folders or, or mandatory IMAP folders. Not blessed, but but mandatory. Yeah. And of course, this is where uh, if you want to do a forward, this is the place you can also do that as well. I'm just seeing that in front of me right now. So. That's true. Yeah. In that same spot, general's the first tab rules is the fifth and last tab. And, and that's exactly right. Yeah. 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 Um, All right. What do you got from Joe for us, John? Oh, this, this one's kind of interesting. So let me get Joe up here. All right. Hey guys, I recall a while back a discussion regarding time machine backups and in particular, Managing backups when things go south or north. Yeah, south. <laughs> I checked the website, searched. Uh, so, so he looked and he, he couldn't uh, find anything uh, uh, relevant um, on the site. But here's my problem. My three terabyte time machine backups started complaining in the last couple of days that it couldn't back up to TM underscore three TV. The details indicate the backup disk ran out of space unexpectedly. Time Machine will try to make more space available by removing expired backups during the next scheduled backup. 
Initially, space on the drive was in the 10 to 20 megabyte range. Hmm, that's kind of low. Uh, apparently, Time Machine is removing files. It now has 540 megabytes free, but after a day, it seems to be stuck at that level. When opening Time Machine, it calculates that the size of a full backup is just over 2 gigabytes. I've run Disutility. Um, uh, he says it talks about a Time Machine repair utility. Um, and he looked in the logs. We couldn't find anything. So he's wondering if there's a file or folder on the time machine that's somehow locked and unable to be deleted, causing the problem. I think that about wraps it up. So, I had one thing for him, Dave. Yes? Uh, And this is something you can do in Time Machine. Uh, And it may not be immediately obvious, but I suggested that he may actually want to, uh, wanted to have manually deleted an older backup. Okay. And maybe kick things in. So it sounds like, it, I mean, it should be clearing out. You know, if it detects there's not a space, it should be able to clear out enough to do a backup. But it sounds like it was it was struggling with that. Yep. Yeah. So um, so the one thing you can do in Time Machine, which, which uh, again, may have kick-started it, uh, you know, working again, is you can manually do this. And how do you do this, you ask? How do you do this? Tell you. <laughs> So what you do is you click on the uh, the drive that you're uh, that's being backed up to Time Machine. Yep. Then you go to the Time Machine menu, say Enter Time Machine. Okay. And then you're going to get the cool Time Machine interface. And uh, my experience has been sometimes it's not uh, immediately responsive, especially if you're connecting to it over a network. Sure. But eventually. You're going to see the tabs on the right that indicate the date and time that the backup was made. And one of my suggestions was, well, why don't you click on an early one, an older one? So first you want to select the date of the backup. But then what you can do is you're going to see what I think we call the action menu or the gear menu or something like that. And if you click on that, you're going to see a choice. Delete backup. Huh. So So you can... Now, what does that do exactly? Because time machine backups are not all inclusive. I mean, they they are incremental only. So do you even know what how much space you are going to save by deleting? Because that one backup, you know, if you go pick some random day or random, you know, uh, period, w- w- is there any way of knowing what that's going to net you? Because it might net you 6K. Right. You know, if you edited one file yesterday and you go delete yesterday's backup, it's not going to delete all the data. It's going to delete what it changed yesterday. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yes. Um, I'm with you on that. But, but again, my, my suggestion was, you know, this may be able to clear enough space so that you. Yeah. So you can make your backup. Yeah. And I also did see mention now another thing here, and I have to try this out here, uh, but I did see some discussion on the, on the internets about this. And uh, another suggestion was that you could use, uh, there's this utility that I have not used before, but uh, it's been suggested that you can use this to also trim or prove. What's prune it called? Backups. It's called grand perspective. All right. And we got a link here. Grand. Uh, and they yeah. do make mention in their documentation that they can understand time machine backups. So it'll let you look, but it'll also let you uh, uh, prune uh, or, or I guess uh, whittle it down here. Yeah. It's, oh, uh, so that answers pers- my question. That's awesome. So 
between those two. Now, eventually, now Joe did get back to us and said, oh, well, guess what? The problem kind of fixed itself. Okay. Okay. I have also noticed, you know, you can, in managing Time Machine, uh, you can go into System Preferences Time Machine and and blacklist certain folders from being included in the backup. So if you know that you've got, you know, some big whomping movie file or something that you don't need to back up, at least not, you don't need to have time machine backup. You can tell it don't back up the, you know, whatever's in this folder and it won't. You can also go into your time machine, like John mentioned and navigate to a specific file or folder and then either right click on it uh, in the time machine interface or use the action menu and say, delete from backups and that will delete that specific file from all of your backups. So again, if you've got, you know, I've I've done this with um, uh, virtual machines, right? You know, I might have a 30 gig file that's a, a virtual machine and I don't care to back it up or I don't need to keep each iteration of it backed up. I created the VM. Maybe I backed it up off on my on my disk station or, or whatever, but I don't need the iterations of it. But. I forgot to omit it initially, so I'll omit it. And then you got to go in and delete all backups of that file. And that will clear up quite a bit from Time Machine. It won't happen immediately because Time Machine sort of goes, it, it, it happens on the next backup. You tell it to delete it, it, it does some work. And then on the next backup is when it really kind of cleans through things when it needs that space and starts doing its pruning and, and all of that. So, um, So there you go. All right. Terry has a uh, hasn't had an interesting question for us, John. Terry says, I use control plane on my Mac to configure several location specific settings, default printer, etc. on my original uh, summer 2012 15 inch retina MacBook Pro. One location specific setting, though, continues to elude me. I have identical down to the model. 27 inch Samsung monitors at both my home and my office. Unfortunately, due to desk arrangements, these monitors have to sit on different sides of my Mac at home. My externals on the left at work. It's on the right. If memory serves back a year ago, when I connected to different model monitors, the Mac would remember the correct arrangement of windows. And it was never an issue. And that is true. The Mac's actually smart enough. It, it remembers window placements by connection. So, uh, so Terry's problem, of course, is that his Mac doesn't realize these are two separate monitors. It doesn't look at serial number. It just looks at model number. Uh, it says, ideally I would like something like location based settings, uh, to be the trigger using settings in control plane or something similar. Unfortunately, I'm not finding monitor or window arrangements as something control plane can manipulate. Am I missing something here? Please tell me that I am. Otherwise, do you have any alternate solutions to resolve this issue? Changing arrangement by hand twice a day seems awfully clunky on a Mac that has so much else automated. All right. Yeah. Um, I don't I don't know that there is a magic solution for you, but there might be something uh, a little bit uh, to help makes things a little bit better. Uh, I don't think control plane is the is the. There, there's no single solution inside control plane, but, but maybe there, maybe there is uh, there's a piece of software that we've mentioned before from cordlessdog.com called stay. And what stay does is it uh, remembers where you have put your windows and you can have different configurations. So you might use stay, set everything up at work, log a config, 
set everything up at home, log a config. And then maybe there's a way using UI scripting or something to build an Apple script that would configure stay. And then maybe you could trigger that Apple script with a control plane rule and maybe then have it work automatically. That, that that's an exercise I'll leave up to, uh, to, to you as the listener for the moment anyway, but it, it could be fun. So there's, there's that. Um, as I was researching this, John, I knew that there, that stay existed, but I couldn't remember the name of it. It's uh, it's kind of a generic name to, to be fair. Right. So, uh, I, I, uh, I started digging around. I'm like, what is that thing called? And I found an article and, uh, this article, and where was it here? I'll find it. Was it appstorm.net? And it was a roundup of, uh, and we humans are addicted to articles that have uh, a, a, a to, uh, to articles that are lists of things. It's, it's a known fact. And it is a list of 30 apps for your multiple monitor setup. So we'll put that in the show notes too. stay is, is listed of course on, uh, I, on one of these, but, uh, but there's all kinds of interesting things that are that are out here. If you have a multiple monitor, you'll probably hate me for recommending that you read this list because eh, most of these things are relatively cheap or even free. But um, but invariably, you'll you'll find a bunch that you want to try out. So we'll put that in the show notes, too, because it's fun and having multiple monitors. Is, I mean, I think I think I wonder what the percentages of. In fact, I'm curious. Well, I don't know. We, we would have to do a, a, a an actual. I don't want to get you can if you have multiple monitors, you can email us. But uh but it would be cool to do a poll to see how many people are using them, because I think uh, especially with, you know, most of Apple's uh, Macs or most of the Macs being sold, being portable, i.e. laptops. Uh, I'm curious how many people are using multiple monitors these days. I bet it's a lot more than it used to be. I don't know. You don't use multiple monitors, do you, John, with your uh, with your MacBook Pro? Nope. <clears throat> Although you kind no, of do got, it with your Apple TV, right? Because you can do AirPlay and and that's you know. Uh, I can't. My machine does not support AirPlay mirroring. Mm. No, my machine's too too old. Got it. See, I was wondering about that. Yeah, when I got the uh, when I got the Apple TV and I read about uh, you know AirPlay mirroring, I'm like, oh, well, that's that's a cool feature. But then I found an article saying, sorry, Charlie. Or sorry, John. <laughs> yeah, but couldn't you use only only uh, uh, OS ten or Mavericks only supports uh, the the operating system only supports AirPlay mirroring on relatively newer hardware. Right, but uh, have you checked out AirParrot? No. Oh, I think for ten bucks you can solve that problem. I'll put a link in the show notes for you. Well, oh no, no I I know it'll do it. It's it's not a problem that I have though. So, <laughs> well, it's only not a problem that you have. It's it, it's that classic thing, right? You don't know you have the problem because you haven't experienced the solution yet. <laughs> right. You'll only know that life can be better with it once you experience life with it. Well, it's not a really a scenario that would provide a lot of value for me. No, you're probably right. It's yeah. The multiple monitor thing is more valuable at a, in a desk scenario. And if you didn't have your Mac mini, then you'd probably be in more of a situation where you, you know, use mm-hmm. multiple monitors yeah but someday i may get a new h because i have a 42 inch uh, hd tv yes and, uh, currently my monitor on my uh, mini is a 19 inch uh, samsung oh it's so tiny so uh hey yeah it works for me 
It's one that I had in the workplace a little while ago. But uh, yeah, at some point I may lug the 42 inch upstairs and get a new, uh, oh, <laughs> new yeah. HD TV. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, Mavericks fun. We will talk to John. Well, I mean, we'll always talk to you, but um, but we'll talk to listener John here. He says, uh, about a month ago, I noticed some people complaining about Mavericks being slow. I never thought about it until then. I rebooted into Mountain Lion and with a stopwatch, I compared boot times. Yes, Mavericks was moving slow. So I went to the forums and saw some possible reasons. I investigated on my own machine and found a big one in an old version of Plex that I did not even know I had. I got rid of it and things were faster. Now that the, now that the holidays are over and I'm settled into the Wisconsin winter. And he says to us, John, by the way, I got 12 inches of snow today and last week was negative 20 degrees F. So please do not talk about New England winter as that mm. bad. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, he says, I decided to see about more speed gains. So I found a program on Mac, Mac update called Etra check E T R E check that is supposed to troubleshoot the Mac. I downloaded and ran it and he pasted in a big, long report, which actually is a great report. And it shows a lot of different things. It shows sort of a system configuration and then all the startup items and launch demons and launch agents in a nice handy list. So it was really cool. And I uh, says, if there are problems, where do I find them and how do I get rid of them? Uh, he said, and he, and he listed a couple that he thought might be uh, the, the issues. And, uh, and he says, so how do I, how do I turn off all these launch agents and launch demons? So uh, first of all, thanks for finding that cool tool. We will definitely put that in the show notes. In fact, I'm putting it there right now as we speak. But once you've identified a, um, uh, a, a, a launch item or a launch demon, or if you, if you even want to look and see, you can, you can manage these yourself. You do not need extra software in the finder. Go into uh, your home. There's two places that they're going to be. And maybe maybe more, John, and you'll correct me on this. But uh, there's at least two places. One is home library. And if you don't have library enabled as visible in Mavericks, you can get to that by going to the uh, go menu with the option key held down in the finder. So home library launch agents or you just go to the root of your hard drive and see library launch agents. Those are uh, the former is your own user accounts launch uh, stuff and then the system stuff uh, in the library launch agents folder. And you will see a list of P lists in there. Each one of those P lists is a separate launch agent. You can just delete those and that launch agent will no longer run. So that that's one way to do it. Uh, you can also edit those P list files. If you know what you're doing and want to get in there and muck about with them, or you can use a piece of software like Lingon to edit or enable and disable those for you. And we'll put a link of course to Lingon in the show notes too. So that's, that's how you manage those. Did I miss any, any folders, John? I think those are all the places. Yeah. Okay. Well, of course you could search. There may be one more. I mean, there's home library. There's the top level library. Well, then there's system library, but system library, but yeah, yeah. third party apps shouldn't be putting anything in system library. Third party apps that want to be system wide should only put them in the library folder, not system library in theory, in theory. So there right. you go. 
And it's also worth mentioning. Well, I yes. thought I'd mention is that if you are poking around in that area, um, I've noticed uh, sometimes it, uh, you'll notice in the console. Yeah. Uh, if, if some software hasn't cleaned itself up properly, you'll see this repeated message. Oh, I can't, you know, something along the lines of trying to launch this, can't launch it, trying to launch this, can't launch it. Yeah. Um, typically, that's due to a piece of software that's been removed, but the P list has not been uh, cleaned up and it will repeatedly try to launch it. And it's too dumb to <laughs> realize that the program's not there. So um, this Etra check for him seemed to identify which launch agents might be a problem or were missing or not loaded or failed. So this might also kind of help you narrow that down. That's cool. Hey, uh, John, I was I was alerted yes. to another cool t- uh, like uh, uh, Etra check reminded me of a, another cool piece of software that I was alerted to this week. Uh, it's new from the folks at Micromat. They make tech tool and tech tool pro and all that stuff. And the piece of software is called machine profile. And it's pretty cool. It's available for free in the Mac app store. And, uh, and it, it, um, it, it kind of, I mean, it does what system profiler does in, in some ways in that it brings up information about your Mac, but, uh, but it, it, it kind of pulls together information that you, you, I've never seen all in one place, right? You know, it shows you what kind of Mac you have, what the model identifier is, right? Because, you know, you, you might have in their example, it's, you know, iMac 27 inch late 2009, but some places call that iMac 10 comma one, right? So it shows you all that. It shows your processor speed, how much memory you have, which graphics chip you have, when it was made, what your serial number is, what the minimum OS is that you can run on that is. So it's taking some real time information and combining that with, with some kind of uh, database driven information uh, about your model specifically or generally. And uh, it's handy and for free, it's super handy. So, uh, so I figured I'd throw that out there. It's good stuff. Yeah. The other, it, it, it's similar. So one thing that I like to, uh, to get data on machines is uh and not just the machine you're running, but a Mac tracker, yep. of course, is a, another cool piece. And, and you know, this shows a lot of the data that you're also going to get from Mac tracker. Sure. But, uh, yeah, it's kind of a cross between Mac tracker and a system and profiler. System pro- yeah, is- exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's cool. I like uh, I like software like this. It, it makes it makes our lives easier as geeks. And uh, and that's, you know. But what what more can we geeks ask for? Can always ask for more. Can we? Are we allowed to? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I, I want to talk about our second sponsor here, John, and that is the folks at Connected Data. You may not know the name Connected Data, but you, I, if you've been listening to this show for more than just a couple of weeks, or maybe even less than that, uh, you know about the transporter. And the transporter is what connected data makes. They, uh, this device is pretty cool. It is a purpose built single focus device and it is private cloud in one solution. So, uh, you buy the transporter and you can buy the transporters. There's, 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 uh, I think four different models. Now I'm looking it up here to make sure that, uh, that I'm getting this right. Yeah. Four different models. You can buy it with a hard drive in it. Uh, and you can buy it with a 
500 gig, a one terabyte or two terabyte drive in it. Or you can buy it with no hard drive. They call that the transporter sync and hook up your own USB hard drive. And the idea is you put this device on your network. You just hang it off of your router with an Ethernet cable. And it doesn't matter location wise where in your house uh, or office you put it because it's connected to your network. And so anywhere on the network, you can sync files to and from this thing. And you can have multiple users syncing to the same transporter. You can have different folders and you can set up permissions and that sort of thing. And that's cool. But it's 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 all syncing. So uh, you you set up a folder on the transporter and you set up a folder on your Mac and everything that you put in one will be in the other. And what's cool is this works great when you're at home or at your office on the network with the transporter. But it also works when you are elsewhere. So you really, truly are setting up a your own cloud server. It's kind of like Dropbox or, you know, SugarSync or any of those where you have data that you want to store and you want to be able to sync to multiple Macs or even with multiple people. And you don't want to have to worry about copying the data to and from before you leave your network. Boom. This takes care of it. So and it's and, and price wise, it's awesome, right? Ninety nine bucks gets you the transporter sync which is the uh, one that you connect a USB hard drive to and then add uh, add uh, the 500 gig drive to it. It's 199. One terabyte is 249. So that's a great price. And then uh, two terabytes is 349. You can take 10% off of any of those prices by using the coupon code MGG. So, uh, so where you go is filetransporter.com slash MGG. And then you use the coupon code MGG to get yourself 10% off of the uh, whichever model you choose to buy. John and I have been using these things for a while. Probably, I think before they were released, I think we were we were in the, the um, beta group at, at some stage of the beta. And uh, and they've they the software for it, uh, both the software that runs kind of on the back end on the on the device and also the software that runs on your Mac has seen significant updates uh, as, as you would expect through the process. And it's gotten to the point where it, it they've got some really cool features. They've got, um, they've got, uh, the ability coming to sync special folders on your Mac. So like your, your pictures and your iTunes and your desktop, it's cool to be able to sync your desktop amongst mul- multiple Macs, especially if you treat your desktop like, uh, like, like I do. I don't know how John does probably, you're probably better about this than me, but I treat my desktop as like a, you know, it's just a, a catch all for a lot of things and sort of it's, it's almost my temporary work folder ish and being able to sync my desktop amongst multiple Macs. That's pretty cool. So check it all out. Filetransporter.com slash MGG and uh, and then MGG gets you 10 percent off private cloud. You don't have to worry about the uh, the you know, the folks at wherever at you know, wherever you're storing your data snooping. Because you're storing your data. So you're the only folks you have to worry about are the people that have physical access to your house or office. And uh, and you can and you don't have to sync. It's actually pretty cool because you can set things to only live on your transporter. And then like John, it gets a little more advanced if you've got two transporters. So John and I have set a Mac Geekab folder to sync, not just between our computers, but to sync between our transporters themselves. And that's uh, cool. You know, like I, I've said it before. There are a lot of private cloud solutions out there and uh, and 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 I've tried many of them and and they all work this. If if what you want is private cloud, the transporter is the simplest way to get there. And I have found no other private cloud solution yet that allows 
easy sharing with people that don't have uh, like if you have somebody that doesn't have a transporter, you go into the web interface, you say, I want to share this folder with that person. You put their email address in and you are done. That's it. You don't have to set up an account for them. You don't have to configure permissions or tell them how to poke through your firewall or anything like that. It just works. So if you want private cloud, check out transporter file, transporter.com. All right, John. Um, yeah, you know, uh, David has a question listener, David, and, um, I have this question too. I don't have the answer to this, but I want to throw it out there. Maybe you have an answer. We'll, we'll kind of discuss some theories I have, but he says, uh, I'm hoping you can help me solve an issue that's vexing and has eluded me. May has eluded my every effort to fix it. The problem is this. When I load YouTube videos on my Mac in any web browser on my home network, the first 10 to 20 seconds of the video plays no problem. Then it stalls. Then it continues with fits and starts through the rest of the video. This is worst in short videos, i.e. 10 minutes or less. Some longer clips will play fine, as do Hulu videos. I've checked the throughput on my network with speed test. No problems there. Tried switching YouTube from HD to SD video. I cleared my browser caches and all my settings to no avail. I have a MacBook Pro with four gigs of RAM running the latest version of Mavericks. The problem seems worse in Safari, which I use most of the time, but I've also had it in Chrome and Firefox. Do you have any suggestions on how I could get YouTube to play better? And I will add that I have seen this uh, prior to Mavericks and Mountain Lion and I've also seen it on my iOS devices. So what is it about you? And, and this is, and I'm, we'll get into this, but I, but I, this is all, I don't think this has anything to do with, you know, filtering of Comcast and net neutrality and any of that. But there is a rant to be had on that as a separate issue. So wh- what could be going on here, John? Why is the, why is this a, a problem that's, that's not isolated? John, that's me. Yeah, right. don't don't ask me, man. <laughs> well, that's why I'm asking. Any no, thoughts? I, well, a couple of thoughts. So I'm wondering. So, so I mean, one thing you may want to just look through your uh, plugins in your browser and just uh, I don't know, make sure that you know everything's up to date and that there aren't any you know extraneous or wacky ones that are that are interfering with that. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, why would that, uh, I mean, that, uh, that wouldn't make sense on iOS, right? Yeah. Cause iOS isn't doing, uh, isn't doing flash. It's doing HTML. Uh huh. Right. Yeah. Uh-huh. Hmm. So I, you know, part of it might be, um, and, and Chris Humphreys in the, in the chat room, I'll say hello to macgeekab.com slash stream where everybody's listening. Uh, Chris Humphreys is saying, try different DNS servers and try Google or open DNS. And that, that, that was my first thought when I've had this issue too, is trying Google DNS, which is 8.8.8.8 or using open DNS, which I already do. So it was okay. Well, let's not use open DNS and see if it gets better etc etc um yeah it's interesting and chris is uh, also saying check uh the firmware of your router which of course i keep mine up to date uh and most people with apple routers also do i i use buffalo routers with different firmware but um 
But, you know, he says there could be some sort of a buffer issue on the router. Maybe I doubt that with the hardware I'm running here. And also the fact that it's only happening on YouTube. It's not, you know, typically I there was a time when I was having problems with Apple TV doing the same kind of thing. It would start to come in and then just really slow down. Uh, but I, I don't I haven't had that in a long time. So I don't I this is one of those I'm, I, you know, we'll throw it up as a geek challenge. If you've if you've had this and solved it, please share the answer. Even if, even if you haven't, you're making a lot of noise over there. What are you What are you trying to say, John? No, the uh, I like it because we did have someone write in with a with a per- network performance issue, and they actually solved their problem by replacing their uh, their router, which I wouldn't have thought. You know, I offered a whole bunch of suggestions, and the reply was, "Thanks, but." Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I replaced my router and apparently the router was uh, was responsible for uh, substandard uh, network performance. Yeah, it can. It can be. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I would I doubt that that's the case with mine. I, I would I would be shocked with this particular router. Actually, and I've had it through. I've had this issue through two routers. But hmm. but it, you're right. No, it is worth it. I mean, it, you know, you and Chris make a good point. It 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 is it's part of the, the system. So if you've got some old router or, you know, something's funky out there, that could be the issue. But especially if you run an Apple routers and I, I don't, just, I don't, you know, I don't expect, I don't expect to have problems there. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know, but, but maybe, maybe that's what it has to be. You know, I don't know. You think if you save it, save it and play it back later. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, you get well, that's I mean, it's easier, slightly easier said than done with YouTube. I, I do save YouTube videos. I use the um, the Mac X. Uh, it's, it's from Mac X dot com and it's called Mac X YouTube downloader and it's free and it does exactly what you would expect. Um, it's actually pretty awesome. So, yeah, it's a cool video. And I use um, and YouTube five is another uh, extension that will uh, make it easier to, uh, and it actually gives you multiple choices for uh, how you'd like to save the video. Right. Yep. 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 We'll put them both in the show notes. It's good. Um, you know, I, I'm going to jump around here a little bit, John, uh, because we started talking about routers. It, there has been talk of this concept of, of or technology called beam forming. And I've always sort of loosely understood or thought I loosely understood what it was. But um, but now I really do. Uh, I found a great article uh, at O'Reilly. It's actually a chapter from one of O'Reilly's books. And uh, and it talks all about beam forming. And uh, oh, shoot, I'm screwing up all my my show notes here. And and essentially, I'll let you let you read the article. You can uh, it's a it's a you know, the chapter's pretty short. I mean, within 10 minutes, you could totally finish the chapter, but even in the first two paragraphs, they describe it really well. In, in short, it's like, and this may not be helpful to people that weren't using networks in the days of hubs before we got to switches, but in, in short, it, it targets the client in a way like a switch does versus a hub. A hub was in a wired network was where you'd plug all your devices in and every device would get all the data passing through. Whereas a switch 
the technology in there says, hey, wait a minute, this piece of data is only meant for that client. So let's only send it to that client. Let's not bloat up the uh, the bandwidth on the on the rest of it because these people don't need that data. And that's that's what a switch will do. What beamforming does is it at, it uses multiple antennas and controls the uh, dynamically controls the amount of power to any given antenna to focus the signal of that particular bit of data to wherever the client is. Now, beamforming uh, was available in 802.11n, but there was no agreed upon standard with 802.11n. And so in order for beamforming to work with N, you had to have client and router using the same tech and and sometimes you'd even buy them you know kind of pre-bonded so it, it you know it was there but it wasn't great uh and that's called explicit uh beam forming with 802.11ac the same thing is true but it's built into the standard so while clients and routers don't have to support it if they do support it they have to adhere to a standard so you can use different people's hardware and apple's routers do support uh, explicit beam forming, which is where there's a handshake that happens between the client, say your your MacBook Pro and the router, and then they can, you know, set up their beam forming. And you get the benefits of beam forming are most pronounced in in kind of medium range scenarios In short range. It, it increases the uh, I can't think of the name of the index, but there's an index that the router then uses to decide how fast the data is going to be sent. So it's able to increase that index. I think it's the MCS index, if, if memory serves, John. Uh, yes, it is. Oh, and, yes. And well, and how do you find that? Well, you can see that because if you hold down option and click on the airport menu, you will see the MCS index as well as the transmit rate. Right. Which uh, I believe those two are uh, pretty much the same thing. They're locked into each other. That's right. Yeah, they're, they're, they're a factor of one another. So, yeah. So, it, it, it you know, when you're really close to the router... Uh, the MCS index is going to be high enough that you're going to basically get maximum throughput anyway. When you're really far away from the router, uh, you're basically at the end of the MCS index anyway, so you're just barely getting signal through. But in that medium range, the beamforming can really help. They say it it can increase the uh, perceived strength by 3 to 5 dB, which is a pretty, uh, um, that's pretty significant, it, you know. And uh, and it and it and and it works now, as I said, that's explicit beam forming. I reached out to my friends at Buffalo because they're really smart about this network stuff and they'll actually talk to us as opposed to, you know, the engineers at Apple, which are you know not supposed to talk to anybody. And uh, and they explained to me because we've heard that, you know, people say, oh, beam forming that, you know, that'll help everything. Well, it's true if you use implicit beam forming where the router just gets to decide it's not as good as when the router and client handshake. But if a router supports it, the router can, can do some beam forming on its own. It can make its best guess at where that client is based on uh, how packets have come into the various antennas. You know, if a router has three antennas, it can see, uh, okay, the packets sent from this antenna are better received than the packets from this one. And it can sort of triangulate and, uh, and 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 shift and and do that and i believe buffalo's next router and i i don't have the model number in front of me uh maybe i do hang on it's not out yet 
but it's coming. Uh, I don't have it right in front of me here, but anyway, they're, 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 I think it's their 1900 series router is, uh, is coming. And uh, yeah, the WXR 1900 DHCP supports implicit beam forming, which means that on it only works on the five gigahertz band, but it does work on 802.11 N on the five gigahertz band because of that. Now, uh, you may also be able to get older Buffalo routers to do implicit beam forming with third party firmware from DDWRT. I noticed that as an option in one of the more recent firmwares that I put on my older Buffalo router. So that's what beam forming does. So uh, and Apple's routers, at least according to their literature, only support explicit beam forming. So you have to have a newer piece of hardware that supports it in order for that to happen. But I, it's possible that a software update could change that. So, uh, and of course, Apple's very tight lipped about this stuff. So it's really hard to get an answer out of them, but there you go. So that's, that's beam forming. If you have any questions, ask us, cause I would like to, I would like to make sure we get this clarified and it's sort of a weird uh, topic. So it's hard, sometimes hard for us to know how well we've communicated something. So if we screwed it up, then there you go. Uh, let us know. But yes, as Chris Humphreys points out in this sense, it's decibels and doubling and all that stuff get a little weird because when you're talking about audible versus um, signal strength and that sort of thing, uh, it can get confusing. However, Chris points out that in this case, three decibels uh, doubles the effective signal strength. And, and I believe that's correct here. So, uh, so it's like it's like 10 decibels if you're if you're using your ears as a um, as the as the measurement piece. But but in this case, yes, it's correct. Three decibels doubles the signal strength, which is awesome. So. All right, uh, John, you want to take us uh, back to our questions with with Stephen? Yeesh. All right. No. Oh, absolutely. OK, good. It's just this is a wacky one and actually caused some trauma for me. I think it did. So, hi guys. Bought a MacBook Pro non-retina a couple of weeks ago. All fine until last night. It started doing some funky loop into iTunes and then taking me back to the login screen. I've tried to boot into safe mode, holding down the shift after chime, but this appears to make no difference and I get my login screen again. Any ideas would be welcome. See attached video. And the video was very entertaining and it showed us exactly (laughs) what he said. Log in. It looks like iTunes is running and then back to the login prompt. And it's like, yeah, yeah, it was very, very interesting. Yeah, he would log in. The finder would come up. iTunes would come up back to the login screen and back to the login screen with no checkmark or whatever by the, the by his username indicating that he was already logged in. So he was being logged out immediately. So I had a few thoughts about this and then I'll share my tale of woe. So one thing, um, now he said he he tried to boot into safe mode here. And the thing is, I've noticed as of late that you getting into safe mode, the computer gets kind of finicky. It's not. Yeah, I agree. And then if you hold, if you don't hold down the shift key at the absolute right time, you're not really in safe mode. And the, the way you can tell that you are in safe mode, at least the, the current current version of the operating system, is that you're going to see 
in addition to the little spinning uh, wheel while you're booting, you're going to see a little progress bar march across the screen. So, And you'll also um, see it say safe mode when you get to the um, login screen. I don't think it does that anymore. Oh, Not in my experience. Really? No, it used to, though. No, I'm with you. Huh? It was Windows that would say that, but no, no, it no. Didn't, it, no. OS 10 says it right above hmm. the right above or below the password dialogue or something right there. Hmm. I mean, well, first of all, it brings up the login screen, even mm-hmm. if you have automatic login set to be on, which is totally handy if you've got some problem like him. If he had automatic login on, it, you know, there would be no way to break out of it other than safe mode because it forces you to hit the login screen. But I'm pretty right. sure it says it on there. I may be wrong. I, hmm. uh, you know, I haven't done it in a little while. Maybe somebody in the you chat. You may room. be. It happens. It happens. <laughs> so safe mode. And uh, I found sometimes safe mode can fix things. But I'll tell you. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, once we're done with the question here, I'll tell you my tale of woe. Um, another thing you could try uh, is you may want to try to boot into OS X recovery. Okay. And OS 10 recovery offers you a number of uh, goodies that may be able to help you. And uh, so uh, let me, let me go. We've got an article about that. So OS 10 recovery offers you, you a bunch of things. And so my suggestion was you may want to go into OS 10 recovery. Uh, one thing you could do is run disutility and see if there's any, uh, any damage to your hard drive. And uh, that can fix it for you. Right. Yeah. That's another one. The other thing, you know, things get worse. Um, from OS 10 recovery, you can also do a time machine restore. That's kind of, you know, hail Mary almost, <laughs> but you may want to restore to a prior, uh, prior system state. That could be it. And then finally, the other option that it offers, uh, is that you can reinstall the operating system. Yeah, I actually had to. uh, So those are my suggestions. The and actually my little tale of woe here is that while I was researching this and I did this as soon as I booted into safe mode and then rebooted my system, I don't know what happened. And actually, at least one of my followers on uh, on the Twitters actually said that they ran into this as well. And that once I rebooted, all of a sudden I got a similar loop where it came up and said. Uh, finder crashed. Uh, you want to open the finder windows that were open before? And I'm like, no. And it's like, oh, finder crashed. Do you want to open the window? And I'm like, what the? Well, that's bad. And I couldn't figure out what the heck was going on. I, you know, I poked around online. Some people suggested maybe a corrupt uh, icon or dock or something like that. I, I onyxed, you know, I cleaned up everything I could with onyx. And the only thing that solved it for me, Dave, was to actually reinstall from the recovery partition. And then wow. all of a sudden the problem magically went away. So that kind of bothers me. Wow. And again, at least one other person said, you know, I, I recently had this happen to me as well. And that, that was how I solved it. So uh, I'm not sure what's what's up with uh, with safe mode there. So um, you, back to Stephen's thing. I'm pretty sure he wasn't in safe mode. And and please do correct me if I'm wrong. But. The fact that we saw iTunes launch tells me that all of his login items are being processed. And I was 99% certain. I, well, prior to this, I was 100% certain that when you were in safe mode, your login items do not get processed. 
that's one of the things safe mode does, right? Is, is it makes sure that it, it keeps you from getting into a loop caused by something you installed? Um, isn't, is that wrong? No, no, no. It's right here. Yeah. On safe mode, it disables all startup items and login items. Yeah. So the fact that we saw iTunes launch tells us that everything else was launching. My guess is if he's able to truly get himself into safe mode, then he could go to he could log in and just get the finder. Nothing's going to launch, not iTunes and not anything else. And uh, and then he can look in his login items list and perhaps find something that's launching, that's causing this, you know, crash of of his entire you know, user environment there, which is, which is interesting, but you know, yeah, I'm pretty sure it says safe boot on the login screen though. Now I got to check it. I can't do it right now. Cause it would, you know, <laughs> the show would stop recording. Yes. Yes. Yeah. We would stop talking. It would be bad. Not good. Yeah. Interesting. So you had to do a full, what I would call a maintenance reinstall. You reinstalled Mavericks on top of, uh, on top of itself, huh? Yep. Yeah, it sat there, um, you know, downloaded it. You know, you need a network connection. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, it did a, you know, download of, uh, you know, the appropriate version. And yeah, cleaned up whatever, whatever was causing my grief. Huh. So hats off to, uh, you know, <laughs> the uh, recovery mode. But I, I, it, it, I'm still kind of bothered that my machine got into that state to begin with that's how we used to fix windows problems you know maintenance reinstall right on top there i don't know uh are we are we is this you want to talk about we had a question from listener ken that was you know sort of like interlockingly related you want to go into that or or did we cover this issue enough uh wait where is it okay here we go Ah, yes, this, I don't know why the PDFs get weirdly formatted sometimes here. All right. I think this is separate enough, don't you? Go. Hi, Dave and John. John Many thanks for your efforts on our behalf. I learn a bunch each time I listen. I have what I think is a finder problem. I run Mavericks 10.9.1 and I'm up to date on my software. When I log out, the menu bar disappears the desktop icons disappear, but the dock stays put. Since I do not have a menu bar, I can't do much. Except if I open any, if I open any application, the menu bar reappears, but no desktop icons. I can then try and log out again, but the same thing happens. If I do a shutdown, then my sessions log out and I can click on shutdown. AppleCare has, me, has had me reset the SMC and repair permissions. While the programs run faster, the problem still exists. Another note, this does not occur with my other login on the same machine. What are your thoughts? That's bizarre, dude. A shutdown will let him out, but a restart will not? Or log out. So, so he can't log oh, out. But he can... log out. Ah, right. The only thing I could offer to see what's causing this, um, try to identify it, when you do log out, if you look in the console, you will see uh, an entry that there is something called session logout D, which handles the whole logout process, as far as I can tell. Okay, yeah. So what I'd say is fire up the console when you're trying to do this and see if, if you know, after that line in the console, see if you can identify, uh, 
you know, what's causing this grief here. Yeah. You may, you may need to put, put console in your dock temporarily because of course it's going to quit console when you tell it to log out. But then if you get stuck at that point where the dock is just hanging there, you can relaunch console and you can look back and, and see, right. That would be, you just, you just might have to do that little, little dance to get yourself back into the console after, after it kind of fails. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I, you know, again, this would be one of those times where booting into safe mode and having it kind of rebuild all those startup caches and all that stuff and would may just magically solve the problem. But, um, but yeah, I'd be curious what that shows because it's going to show something. Uh, you might also, one thing I do when that happens, John, is I invoke the uh, force quit dialogue, which is command option escape. And uh, sometimes you'll see something lingering out there, even though the app isn't visibly running. And that can give you some insight into what's hanging on and what's going on there. So that's, you know. Oh, good one. Yes. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Huh. Well, that's all I got on that one. I, um, I reported an issue to Apple recently, John, via their bug reporter. And it was that I noticed on my on my iMac in the office uh, where I have 12 gigs of RAM and I'm running Mavericks that my kernel task after, you know, running for a day or two, the kernel task process was eating up gobs and gobs of RAM, like, you know, seven, eight gigabytes of RAM and things were paging into swap. And so I reported this to Apple and they asked for all kinds of information, which is always fun. And uh and then I heard back and they said, uh, this is normal behavior. Uh, this is how the OS deals with what it calls compressed memory. And, uh, and, and in Mavericks, what, what happens is if the OS needs more RAM than you have before it pages out to disk, it will start taking things that are in RAM and compressing them. And apparently you know, so that it it doesn't have to tell apps that it's compressed that RAM kernel task uses it up. I don't know. I don't really follow the logic on this. And this is why I wanted to mention it in the show. But but they say this is normal behavior. And it's uh, it's it's a it's the, the report of this and activity monitor is just a symptom of the system compressing memory. But wouldn't you think if the system was compressing memory? it would report more RAM available and not less RAM available. I don't know that I'm, I'm not quite buying the, uh, the, the explanation there, but I figured I'd throw it out and say, look, if you're seeing this, at least currently Apple is calling this uh, expected behavior behaves correctly. They say. So, and, and uh, Chris Humphreys in the chat room is saying, He's seeing the same thing that uh, kernel task, you know, with 16 gigs of RAM floats between four and eight gigs. So that's compressed memory for you. I, again, I, I'm just not, I'm, I'm scratching my head over why, when you compress the memory kernel task would bloat up. But uh, any thoughts on that, John? To gigabytes? Gigabytes. Yes. Huh. I'm not seeing that. Yeah. That, right. Yeah. On my mini, I'm looking right now, uh, 721 megabytes. When was the last time you rebooted it? Uh, a couple of days ago. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, 
on my Mavericks machine, 548 megabytes. Yeah, yeah it's I've never right. Seen this is it. Ma- I've right. Never oh, seen it get that large. This is Mavericks only. Mavericks, you know, Mountain Lion doesn't huh. have compressed memory, right? This is a new Mavericks right, feature. Right. Um, yeah, it's, I don't know, man. I don't know. It's weird. That's weird. But anyway, I figured I'd throw it out there. Uh, glad to know I'm not alone, I guess. But it, it just doesn't, like I said, the, uh, the math in my head doesn't make sense on this one. So, hey, so uh, Roger hipped us to uh, something. He says, I just listened to Naki Kept 43, which is the last show. He says, uh, I heard you talk about the anchor chargers. And he says, I like those. He says, I found something. That's also cool. He says, you guys were talking about USB power and, and uh, measuring how much a given device was using. And he found on Amazon a USB power meter. It's like, I think it's like 30 bucks and, uh, and it measures power and has like a little, it's a pass through thing, right? You plug it into your USB port then on your computer, then you plug in whatever device you want to measure and it will tell you how much power that device is, uh, is pulling, which I think is pretty cool. It's 35 bucks. So, uh, have you ordered one yet, John? Mm, yeah, maybe I should. I think it's only be, 30 bucks. Yeah. Yeah. And John in the last grow in the last show, I confused my Austrian scientists with my German scientists. I kept calling, I kept referring to Schrodinger when I should have been referring to Heisenberg. So my apologies to, Austria and Germany, and of course, all of you for uh, for messing that up. Oh, Heisenberg uncertainty principle. The Heisenberg uncertainty principle. That's right. And, uh, and, and I've heard. We, go ahead. Well, I've also uh, the, there's also some software slang that uh, some people call a Heisenbug. I don't know if you've ever heard that. Term. No, I haven't. Well, it suggests that. <clears throat> excuse me. If you uh, try to put code uh, in your software to try to identify a bug, the bug then it disappears. <laughs> That's pretty good. Very pretty annoying. Good. Yes, 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 yes. And yes, I, you know, I, uh, I, I took some, some entertainment liberties with the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. And, uh, and, and it's that electrons, you can't measure both the direction and the speed, right? Isn't that what it is uh, of an electron? It's um, right, John. Don't you know about this stuff? Don't you know electrical um, engineer? Uh, I took some electrical engineering courses, uh, computer engineer. No, so I'm not a real electrical engineer. Okay. But um, last I checked, you can certainly measure both the direction and the amount of current, at least DC. Yes. Right. 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 I think you were talking about AC current. That gets uh, tricky. Yes. Well, yeah. AC current gets very tricky to measure. Yeah. But the, the Heisenberg uncertainty principle says that you, you can't, once you measure the position, you can't measure the velocity of an electron, right? Isn't that what that is? Mm, I'd, I'd have to talk to a physicist. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, no, I'm pretty sure that's what that is. I, I, it's that you can't, once you measure the position of the electron, you can't know the, uh, momentum or direction that it's going. And if you measure the momentum, then you can't know the position. I think that's, that's, that's what that was. So yeah. Anyway, uh, so that's the USB power meter. And, uh, yeah. Uh, on Twitter, gadget coma, quick little cool stuff. Found thing here, found a way to launch 
iOS actions from the Mac. Think about that for a second. That's pretty cool. It uses uh, both Alfred on your Mac and command C and allows you to do different things on, uh, on iOS. So we'll throw that out there too. Fun stuff. It's a good article to read. Uh, launch iOS actions from the Mac. What else do we have here, John? We talked about beam forming. That was good. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, I don't know what else we have. Uh, oh, Jared sent in a cool stuff found. Let me find him. I want to get this right. He sent in a cool picture too. Um, so Jared says, I have a frequent need to get behind my 24 inch cinema display. And the same could be true of, of a 24 inch iMac. Uh, he says to plug or unplug USB peripherals, etc. He says the way my display is set up on my desk, it's shoved back into the corner where it wedges into the walls. This means that I constantly have to slide the display out of the corner to get behind it. He says the solution is the handy caddy as seen on TV. It was originally designed for kitchen appliances that sit on your counter, like your coffee maker or blender. This little gizmo works perfectly for me to slide my display in and out of the corner. And he sent along a picture and it's got the little IMAX sitting on the, uh, on the handy caddy. So we will put a, uh, a link to the handy caddy. You can get it uh, on Amazon as seen on TV for 12 bucks. And, uh, and it slides it out just enough to get around there and behind. That's actually pretty smart. I, I wind up doing that on my desk all the time. My, even even though it's just against the wall, I slide it out so that I can get in the back. And uh, for 12 bucks, this might keep me from scratching up my desk. So we'll throw that out there, too. I love ingenious things like this. That's good. I love that in, as seen on TV stuff. I, I, I might. I, it, it would be easy for me to get addicted to this. <laughs> not available in stores. That's right. Except is Amazon not a store? I don't I don't know about that, John. That's uh, that's. That's specious, isn't it? Right. When they say that, like, what's the definition of a store? Cause I can sit on my couch and order something. I guess, I mean, you know, where, what have we done here? Hey, you know, um, before we, uh, before we wrap up here, I, I do want to rant a little bit about this decision that has come down about net neutrality. Pilot Pete sent me a great article, sent me a link to a great article by Matt Drantz. Uh, who f- used to work for Apple and now does his own thing. But in uh, Matt's article links to a bunch of different things, but it really kind of helps pull this all together. We saw a ruling come through this week uh, that basically abolishes this, or not abolishes, but but pokes a big hole in this net neutrality thing. And, and what that means is that your ISP, at least currently, uh, no longer has to act like a um, a service provider uh, they, they they no longer have to allow you access to anything on the internet they could say uh, charge you an extra five bucks a month if you want to have access to Spotify and Netflix's servers they could charge John and I for this phone call on Skype because uh, because they want to you know and uh, and that's that's really bad because it creates a scenario. You know, I think it was Fred Wilson, the, the famed venture capitalist, put an article up that again, Matt links to. So it's a great place to start uh, 
where, you know, you say, great, you know, and Fred's looking at this from the VC point of view, but, you know, okay, so he's got some entrepreneur comes to him and says, oh, I've got this great idea for a better picture sharing service, and it's got these great things, and it's all right. And uh, Fred, the VC, says, yep, it sounds great, but we aren't going to fund that because Apple... Uh, and Google and, uh, you know, with Picasa and Instagram and Facebook and Twitter uh, all pay the ISPs and subsidize them so that they'll allow free unfettered access to their picture sharing and your service. People would have to pay extra to access yours. So your project is uh, is dead in the water. Nobody's going to fund you. Right. So th- this is not a good thing. Uh, and it's it's the FCC's fault because they refused. They called. Uh, you know, internet providers, information service providers, as opposed to telecommunications carriers. And if they would just get right. up the stones to call like them. Like a phone line. Like a phone line. Right. If they get up the stones to call them telecommunications carriers, then this problem goes away. But it's not going to be easy now because there's a lot of money. Uh, You know, if they had done this, whatever, 10, 15 years ago, it probably would have went through pretty easily. But now they've got a really big they and we have a really big problem on our hands. So, uh, well, of course, some would argue, uh, you know, some would say, why do you hate capitalism? I mean, hey, you know, shouldn't they be entitled? Shouldn't they be able to charge? uh, Shouldn't they be able to manage their connection as they see fit? They should as but here. So here's the thing. charge accordingly or Uh, no. Absolutely. (laughs) Uh, No, I agree. I agree 100 percent with that. But the thing is, these are people building wires to each of our homes. Right. Mm. And they have a license from the FCC to provide those wires to each of our homes. And the FCC Mm. limits the amount of people that can buy licenses to get wires to each of our homes because otherwise you'd look out at the street and there would be a hundred freaking wires running throughout your town. And so, you know, the, it, it's, it, the, it limits the opportunities for competition. Now, yes, they do have to resell uh, their pipes to other people that want to offer different types of services. So, so yes... It could be that, you know, I have Comcast, but and Comcast wants to screw me with, you know, charges per Skype call or whatever. And then, you know, it could create an opportunity for, say, Dave and John's uh, third party Internet service where we charge X amount per month and we allow you free access. But we are leasing space on Comcast's lines. Right. But, you know, depending on how this all sorts out. You know, we're still forced to lease space on Comcast lines because that's the that's the line that's coming to the homes in my town. So, you know, how does that work when Comcast's entire network infrastructure is built not, you know, not to just allow free access through? Is that even going to be possible? So. Yeah, I, this is this is one of those things where the, where it actually makes sense to have the government. I mean, look, if the government's going to regulate it at some point and we want them to so that we don't have hundreds of wires out in front. You know, this is what we the people want. We don't want hundreds of wires. So therefore, the FCC has jurisdiction and needs to step in and say, no, no, no. You know, we're either going to allow the hundreds of wires, which we the people don't want, I don't think, or They've got to force these people to, you know, to just allow what 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 has been the case up until this past week. I don't know. It's uh, 
It's not it's not something you want to ignore as a user of the internet because it could shut this podcast down, right? It could be that oh yeah, no no no, we don't uh, you know, we we serve our stuff through Cashfly, right? What if uh what if the you know, Cashfly is considered a uh a third party, which I'm sure they would be, and now, you know, Comcast or or whatever your ISP is, AT&T or or you know, you have uh Cablevision, John, what if they say, yeah, we're just we're going to charge you extra to access that stuff. It's not good. Well, you know, if things get too out of hand, then we take to the streets with torches and pitchforks. And, right? uh, and that's what we need to do is we need to. <laughs> well, I mean, we need to, you know, l- listen, there, there's a couple of steps before we get there. But, you know, supporting your, uh, you know, it is it is our government right in the U.S. anyway. I mean, I know we have listeners uh outside of the u.s um but but those of us in the u.s that are impacted directly by this um can can write to our our congress people and 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 to our president i mean this was a big deal this was a big part of uh, how obama got you know elected right he, it was a big part of his campaign so yeah yeah but he doesn't control everything it's supposed to no. be your uh, representatives which we all know always represent our interests dave and not theirs right? that's right <laughs> that's right I'm kidding, of course. Yeah, but Obama ran on this, so you know he's got to get out in front of it now. He's got to own up to that too. It's, but you're right; it's not just him. It's it's all of them need to need to support the FCC and say, yeah, you know, it's going to be a bad fight. Uh, these companies are going to are going to fight you on this, but it's what the people want, and it's what's you know, I, unless it's not what the people want, unless unless all of us here are in the minority, in which case, then that's then what the people want is is. Uh, no oversight there, and then we just have hundreds of cables outside. Mm-hmm. That'd be great. All right, rant off. Yeah, for now. <laughs> Doesn't it's not good though. It's not something you want to overlook if if you're in the U.S. If you're not, then you just watch from afar, and hopefully your country doesn't uh, doesn't yeah. try this too. Yeah. So, Dave, you know what? If you do want to rant, that we prefer that you don't. Though maybe you want to rant. Or you just want to send us a question, or a tip, or a comment, or cookies, <laughs> or snacks. Um, you could send an email, Dave, to feedback at MacGeekab.com. Did you say feedback at MacGeekab.com? I'm pretty sure I said feedback at MacGeekab.com. That's pretty cool. That's good. We like feedback at MacGeekab.com. Uh, John, you know, uh, you can also send in audio comments to us. Uh, you can send them through email. But you can also just call 206-666. That's 206-666-GEEK, which is 4335. That's what it is. Uh, There's other places you can find us. And, John, I dare say we may have found a perfect home for, you know, we've tried various places of, of community, right, where we can all communicate to each other uh and and you folks can can interact with other listeners we've tried it on facebook we've tried forums those have all been okay but just the other day i mean it's been up for like two days uh we set up a google plus community for mac geek and already i can see that it's working the way that it, it it's working better than anything else has before so come on over to google plus and join us there and uh we'll put a link in the show notes and uh you can you can of course uh, add Mac Geekab to your circles, but but come and join our our community specifically. We'll put a link to that in the show notes, and uh, 
It's been great. We've got categories for cool stuff found and just general questions and tips and discussion and all that. I think you're going to like what you find, and, and we would love to have you there. So come and check it out. It's good stuff. Where else, John? Well, there's the Facebook. There is. Facebook.com slash MacGeekCab. That's right. Uh, there's Twitters, of course. And if you go to Twitter.com uh, slash or just with your favorite Twitter client, he is Dave Hamilton. I am John F. Braun. The podcast is MacGeekCab and the publication is Mac Observer. Indeed. Indeed. Uh, I think that's it, right, John? Are we good on this? Well, as always, if you're in iTunes and uh, you have Mac Geek up, up there and you'd like to comment, we always appreciate that. We do. I'm glad you remember to say that, uh, if not each week, regularly. It's good. It's uh, It really does help. Uh, as crazy as that sounds, uh, I know we it's not a place we can interact, so it's so counter to today's social culture where we all get to talk to each other and, you know, John and I are as easily reachable as anybody else. We cannot react to those comments. It is it is not a part of that ecosystem, but it still really helps when you post one. Uh, and you know what? If you go and post one there, also go and post it in our Google Plus community so that people can react to your comment, positive or negative. You know, that would actually be a really cool thing to do. I know it's, again, seems crazy to just copy and paste it, but at least there, you know, we can we can all interact and that's a good thing. So, but yes, having it at iTunes really, really helps. Um, it, it helps keep us in the rankings and all of that stuff that is good for, for us and for you. All right. Uh, we'll thank Michael Johnston from the We Have Communicators podcast and also from GetAppler.com. He converts this show to AAC and adds all the chapters for us and for you. So thanks, Michael. Also thanking the folks at Cashfly, C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com for all the bandwidth to get the show from us to you. Hopefully net neutrality isn't going to... Uh, fall and see that go away uh the podcast they're a great partner the podcast marketplace includes bb edit from barebone software text expander and pdf pen from smile gazelle.com to sell off all your apple stuff and squarespace.com slash mgg all through the backbeat media podcast network john you kicked off the show do us a favor and wrap things up with some pithy yet lasting advice hmm well, if I had to say anything, Dave, I would advise all of you to not get caught. We gotcha.